I was thinking about how to uh, discuss uh, an illustration with respect to this message, a message that pertains very much to the death of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that struck me over and over and over again was the notion of those of us in this community, and, and some of us have had this experience before. Some of us have had this experience very recently, actually. And others of us have maybe experienced it in the past, but I'm actually very curious to know how many of you have, uh, have been in the presence of someone who died. Raise your hand if you've been in someone's presence as they passed from this earth. Wow, that's about a third of us. That's a unique experience, friends. That's an experience that you will never forget. When you're sitting there and your family member or your friend breathes their last. Some, for some of us, there was, a, there was some trauma, there was some accident, and, and we, we witnessed something that was, it was awful. For others of us, we witnessed something that, that was taking time, and we knew it was coming. We didn't know which day, but, but sure enough, the day came, and we watched someone die. That experience will change you. That experience will stick with you. It will do something in you that, that is unlike any other experience. And what's interesting is that today, in the Gospel of Luke, I think Luke is inviting us to watch Jesus die. To sit and watch and gaze upon the scene and to wonder in us, how might this change me? Stand with me if you are able, and let's read from Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 27. A longer text, but we'll be moving through it rather quickly today. Luke 23, beginning in verse 27. The title of this message, uh, by the way, I apologize, Joyce, I skipped right on past it. The title of this message is, See Jesus Die and Experience Change. Luke 23, beginning in verse 27. And a great multitude of the people followed Jesus, and women who also, uh, who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, uh, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and they cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him. 
saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, the other criminal, answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth. And the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You may be seated. Once again, verse 27. And a great multitude of the people followed Jesus. Women mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? I think Pastor Tom mentioned in one of his recent messages that, that mourners in the ancient Near East were often paid. Uh, they were paid to mourn. They were professional mourners. They would receive a small stipend to actually go to uh, wherever there was a, a family uh, mourning the loss of a loved one and they would come and they would mourn and lament and cry out to God. Paid mourners. These were not paid mourners. These were not professional mourners. These represented women who followed Jesus throughout his ministry. And Jesus, walking behind Simon of uh, Cyrene, who is holding the cross in front of him, Jesus sees these women who are weeping on his behalf. And he comes up to them and he doesn't quiet their tears. He doesn't silence their tears, but he redirects their tears. He sees their tears and he tells them to use them for a different purpose. Daughters of Jerusalem, verse 28, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Verse 29, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, breasts which never nursed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jesus says again. How many times in Luke has he now said this? Jerusalem, the city, the people of Israel, because of their impenitent hearts, because of the stubbornness of their hearts, because of their sin and their rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, Jesus says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Rome is going to come and is going to wreak havoc in this city and in this land. And it will be so bad, Jesus hints, that you will wish you did not have children. The ancient mindset in, of course, the ancient Near East was that barrenness was a curse. Um, notwithstanding the fact that, that that perception among Israel was not 
entirely accurate. That was their perception. That was their mindset. When, when, they, when they happened upon a woman who couldn't have children, the, the community looked upon her and thought in their minds, oh, she's cursed. She's cursed of God. It was a misperception, really, of, of, uh, of how, how God interacts in the world. But nevertheless, that was the prevailing opinion in Israel. Jesus takes that prevailing opinion and flips it upside down completely. He says, oh yeah, remember that barrenness is a curse? No, not anymore. Jesus appends the mindset completely. He says, rather than barrenness being a curse, in the day of judgment to come, when Rome comes in 70 AD, barrenness will become a blessing. Why? Because those women won't have to watch their children die. Fewer things are worse for a parent than witnessing their child suffer or die. But that very thing occurred in and around the time of 70 AD, 66 to 70, when Rome systematically destroyed Jerusalem brick by brick. Horrific and unspeakable stories of the Jewish people running for their lives to the nearby mountains and to the hills. Cover us, hide us from the judgment to come. Allusions, by the way, to Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8, in which the people of Israel said, cover us, hide us, mountains, when the Assyrians came down from the north. Also allusions later on in Revelation 6, when at the end of that chapter, at the end of the age, the nations of the world and those who have defied God will also be saying the same thing. Mountains, hills, cover us, hide us from the wrath of God to come. The end of Revelation 6. But back to our story in Luke, Jesus says, don't cry for me. Your tears would be better served weeping for yourselves. Cry for yourselves. Cry for your city, your people. Cry for your children who will die on account of your impenitent hearts. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? That is to say, if Israel does this, if Israel takes their Messiah and crucifies their living Messiah, the greenwood, what is alive, what will be done in Israel when it's dead and dry? If this is what they do in the times of freshness, when the Messiah is here, what will be done? When Messiah is killed. Here we have Jesus bleeding, suffering, headed for death. And yet he is concerned not, of him, not for himself, but for his people. What an unbelievable example of how to suffer well. And that example continues in the next verses. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and they cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with, him, with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. 
Jesus taken up the hill of Calvary, nailed to a cross, the innocent one erected alongside guilty criminals, Jesus enduring sneers and ridicule and mockery from the crowd, yet the first words on his lips, according to Luke's gospel, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In suffering and death, Jesus' mind was not on himself, but on his people. It was on the very people who hated him. With stakes in his hands and in his feet, Jesus loved them. He begged the Father to forgive them, while contending with the Father all the while that their evil deeds were done out of ignorance. They do not know what they do, Father. How starkly that contrasts with how we treat others who harm us. We are uh, we're a people that is slow to forgive. And we certainly don't ever argue that the actions of those who hurt us were done out of ignorance. No, no. When someone hurts us, we believe it was intentional. You hurt me. You did it. When someone hurts us, we believe that it was preconceived, that they had thought about it for a long period of time, how they could harm us, how they could sin against us. When someone hurts us, we think in our hearts they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing when they harmed me. They knew what they were doing when they sinned against me. If ever there was a situation where people deliberately sought to do someone harm, it was this moment in the Gospel of Luke, when they crucified Jesus. There is no clearer moment where people clearly sought and preconceived and intended to do harm to someone than in the story of the Gospel of Jesus' death. And yet, Jesus actively sought ways to interpret those actions as being done out of ignorance. Jesus went out of his way to interpret them as ignorant actions, as actions that they did not mean, did not understand, did not comprehend. If they only knew who I was, Jesus thought, they would not have done such awful things. This is an example for how we should go out of our way to cover the offenses of those who harm us and sin against us. Proverbs uh, 17, chapter 9, one of my my all-time favorite Proverbs. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. It's it's the covering of transgression and sin. It's those who cover it, who put a blanket over it, who, who interpret it as an act out of ignorance. It's those who cover a transgression who seeks love. But if you start talking about it, you start, you know, picking it apart and ruminating on it and talking with friends about it, can you believe what they did? That'll separate friends. And another one, Paul exhorts us in how we should live. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we are to endure, friends. Being defamed, we're to entreat. We have been made 
as the filth of the world, the offscoring, the scum of all things until now. For the kingdom of God is not in word but power, he says later on. Paul is saying, this is how to live. Not in backbiting. Not when someone harms you to announce it to the world and post it on social media and say, look what they did, look what they did. The only criticism thus far that I have about the Christian couple up in Oregon, uh, the only criticism that I have, this, this Baker couple up in Oregon who uh, they had a situation where um, a homosexual couple came to them, wanted them to, to bake a cake for their wedding. And, and this Christian couple, in their mind, they, 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 they thought about it and they said, you know, that we, don't, we don't feel good about this. We don't feel good about participating in uh, a homosexual wedding ceremony on, on any level and in a cake well maybe there's some there's some level of participation there i don't know i i, I kind of can see both sides of that argument but but this this christian couple up there in oregon they said you know we can't do it we can't do it and i had i have a lot of respect for them in, in their in their decision and how they've gone about conducting themselves in the media and in the spotlight they've shown a lot of grace a lot of love but the one criticism i have of them is that when they received the complaint of these two uh, lesbian women who complained against them for discriminating, is that this Christian couple took that complaint and posted it on social media for all to see, the address, the phone number, and all the rest. And so what happened to that homosexual couple? Well, of course, they started getting threatening phone calls and emails and, and people showing up at their door. You know, when you broadcast an offense for all to see, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good. It's those who cover an offense that seek love. It's those who take an offense and seek to say, you know what, I'm going to find ways to interpret this as an act of ignorance. Jesus actively looked for ways to defend those who sinned against him to defend sinners. We should too. Luke records one final man who hurled insults at Jesus before his death. It was one of the criminals now who hung on the cross next to him. Take a look at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we, we are under it justly, for we've received the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals. One on the right, one on the left. We read the words of the criminal who blasphemes Jesus in verse 39. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. We read those words in verse 39, we shake our head. Man, this, this guy, he just doesn't get it. We shake our head in disapproval. By contrast, we read the words of the, of the other criminal who defends Jesus beginning in verse 40. Do you not even fear God? And we start nodding our heads in agreement. Yeah, this, this man understands. This man gets it. But before we jump too quickly to commend the faith 
of the criminal who hung next to Jesus. Before we praise him too hastily for this beautiful defense of our innocent Lord, the first thing we should do to this criminal is criticize him. Because according to the Gospel of Matthew and according to the Gospel of Mark, this criminal also spent time prior to this moment hurling insults and ridicule and mock mockery of Jesus. Take a look at one uh, of, of those two Gospels. Look at what Mark has to say. With Jesus, they also crucified two robbers. Those who passed by, they blasphemed, blasphemed Jesus. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes. Verse 32, even those who were crucified with Jesus reviled him. In Matthew chapter 27, not on the slide behind me, but in Matthew 27 verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with Jesus reviled him with the same thing, the same words. Did you forget that part of the story? Now, this is an opportunity for critics of the Bible, of course. Any critic of the Bible, here's your opportunity. Boom, they're licking their chops. Critics of the integrity of Scripture, they look at this and say, see, see, Christians, Matthew and Mark disagree with Luke. Matthew and Mark clearly demonstrate that these two thieves, these two robbers, these two criminals were with the crowd, hurling insults, mocking him, verbally abusing him. And that Luke seems to suggest that one of those criminals had this glorious moment of awakening. And so critics of Scripture, those who... who who uh, love to, uh, to point out wherever they can find a hole, they point to this seeming, uh, seeming inconsistency in Matthew and Mark versus Luke, and they say, see, the Bible is offering contradictory accounts of what really happened, to which I say nonsense. I see nothing of the sort. You know what I see? I see the overwhelming power of God to soften even the hardest human heart when that person sees Jesus. I see a criminal who was guilty, who was hardened. I see a man who certainly did hurl insults at Jesus. I see a man who mocked the Lord, who ridiculed Him, who reviled Him, just like the other criminal across from Him. But then something happened. He started to see Jesus. He started to watch Jesus receive insult. He began taking notice that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And that when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten back. He watched how Jesus suffered. It was unlike anything he had ever seen in his life. And suddenly, the venomous words that were pouring out of his mouth, just like his associate across the way, the venomous words suddenly, as this man watched Jesus suffer, those words started to fade. The insults and the disdain, it started to wane. And he began to realize that this man, this man is saying nothing in return. This man is... He's covering every offense. This man is receiving 
all of the ridicule, all of the disdain and scorn. And he's accepting all of it without a word of his own defense. Not seeking his own vindication. This criminal, this thief, who was hurling insults, began to see Jesus for who he is. The example of the Savior, the movement of God's Spirit, the softening of this criminal's heart, it collided. And Jesus, in his final hour, did once again what he came to do. He saved a wretch like that criminal. He saved a wretch like you and me. There is no incongruity in how the gospel writers describe the two criminals that hung next to Jesus. There is only another telling of the glorious gospel of God's grace. And oh, how wide and oh, how precious did that grace appear to this criminal. This criminal, he couldn't do one thing to save himself. He couldn't do one thing to affect his salvation. He couldn't promise God that he would change his life. He was nailed to a cross. He couldn't make a vow to make amends to all the people that he had wronged. He had only hours left to live. He couldn't prove his faith by persevering to the end. He was at the end. All this man could do was to speak words to Jesus that reflected the condition of his heart and beg God for mercy. All he could do was to say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me, a criminal. Lord, remember me, a guilty sinner. Lord, remember me, the one who mocked you moments ago. Lord, remember me, the one who can do nothing but look upon you and believe that you are who you say you are. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Boy, the lesson of uh, the thief on the cross is don't you dare think that you are too far gone and don't you dare think you can do anything to secure your own salvation. Don't you dare think you're too far gone. This thief, he was guilty as charged. He deserved to be up there. He had committed crime after crime after crime and the people were done with it. They hung him. It was the last straw. Don't you dare think you're too far gone. The most hardened of criminals can be saved. But also, don't you dare think that you can do something, contrive something, help God along in achieving your salvation. Because he doesn't need your help. This thief couldn't do anything. It was Jesus who was the one who secured his salvation. 
Jesus was the one who died and rose again. Jesus was the one who defeated sin and death. Jesus was the one who offered this man eternal life if he would just believe him for it. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you to do something. He doesn't need your good works. He would like them, but he doesn't need them. Because when it comes to justifying you before Almighty God, all he needs is your heart. All he needs is your faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. The only thing that this thief could offer Jesus was his heart. And it was enough, because Jesus is enough. Three final verses as we conclude our time. Verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Cosmic signs indicating God's sadness and displeasure. The veil of the temple torn in two. The place between the holy and the most holy place torn in two, indicating that now there is free access to God by faith in Christ. You don't need to be a priest to walk that far in. You don't need to be a priest a most holy person to have access to God. The veil's been torn. It's been torn by Christ, by his death, by his resurrection. And Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Do you see how Jesus died? Do you see how he died? Do you see how he received insults? Have you meditated on how he was reviled and didn't revile in return? How he suffered and did not threaten? Have you gazed upon the death of Jesus and learned how to live? How to conduct yourself? I've yet to actually see someone breathe their last. It's not something I, I, uh, I really ever want to see. Uh, I've come close to that moment. Some of you have been there. But I've certainly been in situations where I knew that these were the final hours. These were the last days. And always in those moments, you're, you're having that one final moment with that person to say your goodbye to express your gratitude, to share with them what you learned from them and how you intend to carry on that legacy. My challenge to you here is as you gaze on how Jesus died today, 
as you read his word today afresh, see how many times he didn't think of himself, but thought of you. How many times he went out of his way to excuse your sin and my sin as just a matter of ignorance. How he covered our offenses time and again. As you gaze upon the death of Jesus, how will you show your gratitude? How will you change and be transformed? See Jesus die and you will experience change. That's why we look at the cross because we need to be reminded of it. Keep looking at the death of Christ. Learn how to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that, uh, that death is that, that great reckoning moment for all of us. And we know that when we watch death, Lord, that's, that's a moment we'll never forget. Well, today, Father, uh, we want to see again and afresh the death of your Son. We, we want to see it again for the first time. Because we know that as we meditate upon it, it can completely change our lives. It can completely change the way we conduct ourselves the way we receive insults and hurt, the way we extend grace and mercy, overwhelming mercy to others. So let us walk in your footsteps, Lord. Let us suffer and even die in the way that you suffered and died. Selfless, humble, completely focused on others. Let us follow in that example, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.